Resolution 1373 from 2001. Uh, as you know, the United States, uh, as uh, the European Union, and uh, Australia and New Zealand considers uh, the ELN as a terrorist group, and that is why we uh, believe we have all the reasons to uh, put in action this uh, resolution. Um, the commanders of the ELN are some of them in Cuba. Uh, two of them, the main, the main two of, of the what we call the central command of the ELN, are in Cuba, and uh, the other two are in uh, other three. I'm sorry, are in Venezuela. I'm talking about uh, alias Pablito. Pablito is the uh, most important military commander of uh, the ELN. And uh, we, are, we have confirmation that he is in uh, Venezuelan territory. And uh, our government uh, asked many times uh, the Maduro uh, dictatorship to uh, hand over the, these uh, commanders to the Interpol. We have red notices uh, for uh, the three ELN commanders that are in Venezuelan territory. And we have another two red notices uh, for the two other commanders that are in, uh, in Cuba. Uh, that is why uh, I think is the main idea uh, of, of my presentation today. Uh, we have a transnational uh, guerrilla, uh, talking about the ELN. We have a transnational uh, armed illegal group, and the treatment uh, for that uh, must be transnational, because uh, sometimes uh, some people think that this this is a, a, only a Colombian a problem, but now uh, it's not only a Colombian problem because the ELN is transpassing the borders. He, they are using uh, uh, the territory of another country. It's like uh, ETA in, in Spain when they used uh, Spanish and French territory, and there are other many examples uh, of transnational armed groups. So the treatment for a transnational problem must be a transnational solution, and uh, especially when they are using uh, narcotics, narcotraffic, and illegal drugs to fuel, fuel their armies and to get financial support uh, for their armies. This is talking about the ELN. Uh, on the other side, we have what we call dissidencias, which are the, the dissidents from the peace process that uh, was signed with the FARC, the dissidencias are also uh, in Venezuela territory. They are trespassing the border all the time. And uh, we are not considering them uh, uh, as political uh, actors for a possible uh, peace dialogue. They are uh, criminals, and they are now uh, in the process of uh, growing their business of narco-traffic within Colombia, and they are using Venezuela territory for do that. And on the other side, we have a new group. You, you know about them, uh, Jesus Santrich and Ivan Marquez. They decided to um, uh, deny and to um, um, attack the peace process. They helped to negotiate. And now they are um, in the process of trying to be included in the big dissidencies. Uh, but our information is that Santrich uh, and also Ivan Marquez and also alias El Paisa 
and also alias Romagna uh, are in the process of trying to be included uh, as part of the dissidencias. Our knowledge is that uh, the chief commander of those dissidencias, which is Gentil Duarte, uh, is not accepting them as part of the dissidencias because they consider uh, Marquez is weak uh, because uh, he was the chief uh, negotiator uh, for the peace process with the former government. So our information is that they are trying hard to they are trying hard to uh, to be part of the of uh, of this group, but they, they are not accepting them. Uh, other big big issue for us is immigration. Uh, we are quite open, and we are uh, be, we have been very uh, careful and uh, very prudent to uh, receive and accept uh, Venezuelans in our country because we believe that they are. Uh, we are uh, brothers countries, and uh, we need uh, to support Venezuelans here. The generosity and openness of our uh, president is quite clear for the international community. So we have to uh, try very hard to strengthen in the, um, the, uh, the conditions, education, health, and etc. for for these immigrants. But we have a concern: is that these groups, these armed groups are in the process of trying to recruit them, uh, taking profit of, of, of their situation of poverty and difficulties. So for us, it's quite important also as the illegal groups that are defy, uh, trying to defy, uh, um, trying to attack or, or to destroy uh, governance in, in our country are transnational. So immigration is a, a transnational problem. This is the message. I think the most important thing is to approach this difficult issue uh, in a transnational uh, way, uh, trying to get the support of international community, because this is not uh, only a Colombian problem, and we need to have a different approach from a perspective of co-responsibility. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alto Commissionado. That was excellent remarks. We appreciate your, your insights. I will invite now the panelists to join me on, on the panel. We invite the Alto Commissionado to watch the event live stream as well in our, on our CSAS website. Um, before we start the panel discussion, I want to spend a couple of minutes just to put into context what the Alto Commissionado and our colleague from the Treasury and, and the Ambassador already said, right, in terms of how much presence there is in Venezuela uh, when it comes to these criminal groups. According to our own research, you see that more uh, about half of the territory of Venezuela, there is some presence of FARC, dissidents, ELN, uh, Garimperos, other criminal groups, including Hezbollah, for example, in the North uh, Nueva Esparta state in Margarita, in, in the island of the Caribbean. Caribbean. And and, 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 and and again again see the 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 the, 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 of the territory the territories to, to the presence of these criminal groups. Um, these maps made by Inside Crime shows the activity happening in the border area, right? That's that's a thirteen hundred mile border, and and as you can imagine, the the activity there is 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 is, is happening in a, in a range of. Of, of many criminal activities, right? Drug trafficking, oil trafficking, even meat 
trafficking or food trafficking. There's a lot of criminal activities in that, in that area. And of course, you have the presence of ELN, FAR, the, the FARC Mafia, as some experts call it, uh, EPL, and, and other criminal groups. On this other map shows the ELM presence in Venezuela. And you see that arrow going into deep into the Amazon area in Venezuela. That's where all the illegal mining, the oil reserve are located, right? And that, that arrow area is the size of Portugal. It's, it's huge. It's a vast territory where, where there's a lot of criminal activities happening, right? And, and that's where uh, the importance of this discussion is, is so relevant, right? Just I'm gonna I'm gonna post this PowerPoint on our website on the on the event website, but just to give you fast facts, FAR operates in seven states in Venezuela. About 1,500 members are in Venezuela. Over 200 members are Venezuelan, according to Inside Crime. ELN operates in 30 states within Venezuela. Over 1,000 members operate within Venezuela, which is about 45% of ELN membership. Um, and overall, there are also 100,000 colectivos. This number is disputed. There's no consensus how many colectivos are, and, and, and more so how many armed colectivos are in Venezuela. The, the closest number I got was five to 7,000 uh, armed colectivos, and, and many more um, unarmed, but they are part of the colectivos, which is a paramilitary body that Maduro and Chavez created, right? The illegal mining uh, was, is, is very important. Just to give you a quick fact, Venezuela today is the th 32nd largest producer of coal in the world. But Maduro is planning to increase that production almost by three times, which will make Venezuela the second largest producer of gold in the world. About 80% of gold in Venezuela is illegally extracted and exported, and obviously serving as a very important source of financial um, uh, to the Maduro regime. And, and that's just a picture of how impactful, uh, how the impact, the environmental impact that the illegal mining has in Venezuela. Obviously, there are social, economic, and political consequences. Many children are serving as miners in these mines in Venezuela. So again, this has very, very important ramifications of, of this crisis. But let's let's get into the panel. I think we have a top expert panel here. I'm so happy to have you, all of you guys here. Thank you so much for making this time and this effort. We're gonna start with Isabel de Santo, de Saint Malo. She was the first woman elected vice president in Panama. She was the vice president and minister of foreign affairs from 2014 and 2019 under President Juan Carlos Varela. She has an impressive background. I encourage you to take a look at, your, at her bio and all of the panelists' bio that we that you have with you. She's currently uh, at Harvard University as a non-resident fellow. Um, and, and so, yeah, thank you for, for coming all the way from Boston and, 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 and for being here. Isabel, I wanted to ask you how transnational organized crime and armed groups pose different security threats than domestic uh, networks, right? That, that's, I think, is an important question just to put into context the differences, what we're talking about. But thank you again for being here. Thank you so much, uh, Moises. Good morning, everybody. And thank you for, for the invitation. And more than that, for uh, CSIS to host this event and continued interest in Venezuela. Uh, we've followed how CSIS looks at the humanitarian situation, the return of democracy. And I think it's very important that we continue to analyze every aspect of the Venezuelan uh, crisis as it 
it is very, very complex. Well, uh, it, it is undoubted that there is a big difference when armed uh, presence is domestic or is connected to international crime. And if we could just point to the most important differences is the access to resources and intelligence. What this represents for the Venezuelan conflict is of enormous consequences. And actually, uh, the figures that you have shown um, show that it's, it's a lot more complex and larger than I, than I expected. This means that these groups within Venezuela not only have control of territory, but are connected to the world for financial resources, for intelligence. And the question is, what does this represent to the re possible return of democracy in Venezuela? And, and I think several things. First of all, it just makes it a lot harder for the regime to, to leave because the consequences of, of their leaving is far from losing power, is far from uh, leaving uh, power in a country. It represents that they are probably connected to situations that will take them nowhere. So that is a very important uh, factor. The other thing that I would raise is what this represents for the region. It has already been mentioned here uh, by Colombia, what this represents to Colombia, but I would not even speak about Colombia. I would be, speak about the region and I would speak about the world. If we know that uh, drug production has increased and uh, there is more transit of drugs from Latin America to the United States and to Europe, what does it represent that we have armed groups within Venezuela with connections to the regime that operate in connection with criminal activity globally, what does this represent for making drug trafficking easier, uh, larger? And, and we're talking about local, a local situation with severe regional implications, but with severe global implications as well. And the third thing that I would point out of the presence of these groups with international uh, connections within Venezuela is what does this represent in terms of fear for the Venezuelan population. We already know that four or five million people have left Venezuela, are in the vicinity, and this will continue to happen. And this is probably the result not only of a humanitarian situation where there is no access to health and no access to basic uh, things, but also what happens to fear. There are allegations of the connections with the regime on kidnaps and, and, and security risks for the population of Venezuela. So as the population becomes more fearful of what's going on within, when then people are just continuing to leave. And I think that just makes it harder for, for the eventual restoration of democracy to um, Venezuela because those that oppose the regime are, are, are leaving for, for, for obvious reasons. I think it's important what has been said here as well about um, asset control, and, and I think that's part of the next steps that we would have to discuss uh, further. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Dan, thank you for being here.
He is the currently CEO at the International Republican Institute. You've been in IRI for, since 2009, uh, done serving key positions in the U.S. government, including a special assistant to the president, senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs on the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. Um, Dan, thank you again. This is a question that I think is re very relevant too. I, I mean, what is your assessment of the presence of transnational organized crime, including armed groups, and their impact in democracy, in governance, and, and how we think about the Venezuelan crisis in the region more broadly? Um, uh, Moises, thank you. And I extend a thank you to CSIS for inviting me to be here. I will uh, speak just as an individual, not making any um, institutional representations. I think this is uh, kind of a very fascinating question. And step back, if you think about the transition that the hemisphere has undergone since the 1980s in terms of democratization and the great progress that has been made. And generally, when we've talked about democratization, political processes, uh, we've talked about kind of what one would con consider at this point conventional threats. Uh, in terms of greater opportunity for citizen participation, whether that's politically or economically, dealing with the rights of women, dealing with the rights of uh, marginalized groups, uh, has done is actually be able to create these alternative avenues. You have to, if you mine gold, you have to be able to turn it into cash and make it liquid. And, and how do you do that? And they have been able to at least find some countries around the world to ally with them uh, to, to, to process that and create those revenues. And that's something that needs to be um, the governments, not just of the United States, but the governments of the hemisphere. Again, I go back to the Europeans, others in Asia need to step up in terms of uh, dealing with those. It also goes to the fact that we cannot overlook countries like Mexico. This isn't just an Andean issue. This go back to Central America. It's a major transit point for narcotics, narcotics which are trafficked through uh, uh, Venezuela, as the head of Southcom uh, noted last week, the increase in trafficking out of Venezuela is uh, significant. So it's a matter of maintaining a very strong engagement throughout the hemisphere with those countries that want to work with us. And at this point, there is a much larger coalition. It's also continuing to work on our neighbors in the Caribbean, uh, who at this point continue to struggle. I'll be diplomatic in my statement. Continue to struggle, struggle with kind of how to deal with Venezuela. But they need to understand that their security, their well-being is at risk if the Maduro regime is allowed to continue to exist. Thank you. That was great. Thanks. Fernando Kutz is a senior associate at the Cohen Group. Fernando previously served as a senior advisor to both National Security Advisor McMaster and General Waddell. He also served as director for South America and acting senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the White House National Security Council under both administration, Obama and Trump. Uh, he served again under, yes. So a question for you, Fernando, is, is more of how the Maduro regime seeks to benefit from Venezuela's status as a hub for transnational crime and illicit activities and why this affects policymakers to respond? Like why, why this is different and how we can think about responding to this crisis differently? Well, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Moses, for, for doing this uh, to CSIS, for hosting us. Um, 
it's it's a very uh, it's a very tough problem, obviously, right? I mean, if there were easy solutions, we would have resolved uh, the, the crisis uh, many years ago and, and previous administrations. Uh, and and certainly, uh, when Juan and I were at the White House, we would have resolved the crisis um, uh, at that point. Uh, but but the truth is that we don't know the full extent of the illicit activity that takes place in Venezuela. Uh, and, and I think we're continuously finding out more and more of how much uh, there is once you start to help Venezuela on this process and, and more broadly the region, right? What, what are the gaps that you see that we can do more to, to disrupt these criminal activities happening in Venezuela from the Panamanian point of view? Then Fernando mentioned the, the issue of indictments. Um, and you said that, you know, Maduro and Cuba, the, the Castro regime are not normal political actors, right? These are organized criminal governments who are working together. Uh, so in your view, what else, so what other policy tools do we have in the toolkit that we can use to, again, increase pressure on Maduro and, and support the Venezuelan people in this very important moment? But going back to you, Isabel. Thank you, Moises. Transnational crime collaborates and they are unfortunately, many times faster than governments are to respond. Uh, but if they collaborate and that strengthens them, there is no way of addressing this unless governments collaborate. That, that is central. And I think that has been happening. That needs to continue to happen. In terms of sanctions, in terms of sharing of intelligence, in terms of having a, um, a united front. And I think 2019 has been a year after uh, uh, the recognition of uh, President Guaido as legitimate president of, of Venezuela uh, has been a year where we have seen some of that back and forth. And we definitely need uh, this collaboration to be firmer and more, and more steady. I was thinking of what happened when Panama was under a military dictatorship many years ago when Noriega was in power. At the time, we, we forget, it was, it was a long time ago, maybe some people here were not even born, but it was not that long ago. And we forget that Panama was without a financial system, without banks for a long time. And Assets from the Panamanian government within this country were frozen. And those assets were placed at the disposition or, or part of it of the Panamanian opposition. And that was very important in aligning the Panamanian opposition and in making it possible to strengthen the fight to recuperate democracy in Panama. Along the lines of what has been said here, General Noriega was indicted. I'm not making a comparison. There are different situations, different countries, but it really doesn't help when, when, when information is not shared. And I think that's an issue there that needs to be put on the table as well in terms of policy making for the future. It's not only policy making, it's policy making, and to make it happen, we need to have everybody around the table and different countries have different legislations and and it's it we we cannot all act on the same lines but if we coordinate we can find ways and i'm not 
in office anymore, so that won't be my responsibility anymore. But I am sharing this as a, what, uh, what we went through because I think it's relevant for the future. So kind of along those lines, I'll first quip that, you know, when you leave, uh, when you leave an official position, um, you all of a sudden have all the answers. Um, somehow you never had when you were in government. But uh, I've uh, actually learned um, that's not the case. Uh, one of the challenges in terms of the policy uh, is quite often uh, policymakers are asked to manage contradictions and manage competing priorities. Now, this is stating the obvious, um, but nonetheless, uh, it becomes a very real set of parameters when looking at a situation like Venezuela. Um, if, uh, to kind of uh, key off of Fernando's comment, if it, indictments were the magic formula, um, then um, bring them on. Um, and if one had the presumptuous uh, belief that a U.S. indictment uh, could alone affect a change, uh, then all the more reason to have that mechanism uh, used on that. Uh, I think they're they're important. Um, what the indictments did in the case of Panama, if I can just play off that, is actually, as much as anything, changed the debate in the United States. It said to Americans that the U.S. had a different interest in Panama and had to act. I think one of the situations with Venezuela is there's political consensus on what the challenges with Venezuela are, who that problem is. Um, this is bipartisan. Um, this is between the House and the Senate. Um, so, you know, you don't really find many voices, there are still some, uh, many voices um, defending uh, Maduro uh, or um, anyone around him in that. Uh, this really comes down to an issue of resources um, and political will, play off what Juan said, and political will not only in Washington, um, but also, again, I go back to what I said at opening in terms of earlier, uh, earlier remarks about uh, political will in other capitals. Uh, if you're gonna cut off uh, financial notices, uh, but those become an important aspect of this if countries will actually act on those notices. And so I think that, again, is what, uh, what the big open question remains. I understand. Um, Fernando, going back to you, I mean, the, the High Commissioner Ceballos mentioned that this is a transnational problem, and therefore we need a transnational solution. So on the same line as Dan and Isabel and Juan, yourself, right? Like, what else is there on the policy toolkit in the region? But more specifically, I know, I know you were around when the Lima Group was formed, right? And, and this is more or less unprecedented. For the first time, we have a, a group of important countries, although some countries were losing some countries, gaining others. Um, is, this, is the Lima Group enough, or is this an effort that should be more broad, more looking at other allies in, the, in Europe, what the Europeans should be doing on this issue, what um, is, is there a role for Asian countries, um, and, and more broadly, right? It's, it's because this is, again, this is becoming a global issue. I mean, Venezuela will easily turn into the, mo the country with most refugees in the war by 2020 if the status quo continues. So in a way, the mindset will have to be changing and how do you see that mindset changing and what, what other countries in the world should be doing about this? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I just want to completely agree with the Vice President, with Dan. Uh, you know, multinationalism is a, is a huge important component of uh, getting to any kind of resolution. Uh, I don't think we're going to do this alone. Um, moreover, I'd say sanctions uh, 
you know, I don't, can't speak for, for since, uh, for, for, for really anything, but I'll say for myself, um, uh, I don't think I would ever imp- uh, recommend imposing sanctions as a tool to bring about regime change, right? I don't think sanctions alone uh, bring about regime change. Uh, it's never been done, uh, and uh, nor, nor do I think it, it can be done. Uh, sanctions are a tool to create momentum. Uh, to then bring the other side to the negotiating table and hopefully uh, give, uh, in this case, the opposition or, or you know, the Gaido administration uh, at least an equal footing when they show up to that table, right? So that's, that's why you do sanctions. So I uh, also want to be clear about that. But uh, to the broader point about what policy tools do we have, what multinational um, uh, route is there? Um, yeah, I think the Lima Group was absolutely a historic occurrence, as you said, Moises. That that was uh, incredible uh, for all of us to see. Right, uh, the the region came together uh, in a way that and want to engage on Venezuela. Now, as the region continues to churn uh, at the moment and and uh, becomes very unclear as to who is who and uh, where in the ideological spectrum anyone falls at any given moment, um, it's it's important for us to remember that we did have a historic alignment in 17 and 18 and most of this year, uh, and we all knew that was going to go away. Right, part of the pressure and making that be the moment was, of course, the people were out in the streets. Of course, Maduro was acting in a worse way, but also that incredible alignment in the region. Uh, and, uh, you know, chances are that will go away. Uh, and, and so uh, we might need to develop new strategies and new policies and new international uh, coalitions. Uh, but, uh, but the truth is, again, it has to be based on action, not just vague promises. Thanks, Fernando. Okay, last question before we open it up for, for the audience. Uh, and it's for you, Juan. And it's about the day after in Venezuela, right? Like, what are the implications of, of the presence of armed groups in Venezuela when, if Venezuela restored its democracy? Because these groups are going to still physically there. <laughs> and whatever government comes in will have to deal with these groups. And I'm talking not only about ELN and FARC, but also colectivos, um, you know, other criminal organizations, which many are part of the government itself in different ministers, in different agencies and, and, and institutions. So it's a huge challenge for Venezuela, not only for, for an economic, social, political point of view, but from a security point of view. Uh, and I know you have been, you know, thinking about this issue for about the day after. And, and so we're eager to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> <laughs> So for the next seven hours, I'll be reviewing the. Uh, uh, maybe I'll take it from a you know sort of narrow this a little bit because, you know, going back to one of the points I made, you you have to pursue those uh, threats to national security that uh, first of all are a threat to uh, stability and to governance of the central government. You're going to have whatever new government rolls in is immediately going to have to um, uh, gain fast roots and uh, stiffen their resolve because they're going to start receiving criticism and worse from from the very beginning, from various sectors. Um, that, and you have to, um, you know, before we want to rebuild Venezuela, and to rebuild Venezuela, we've already heard that it's going to, as a transnational issue, all countries are going to have to uh, participate in some form. But um, what you're going to have is... Um... Okay, great. Thank you all. You've been very patient. Um, if you have a question, please just raise your hand, say your name, say your institution. And remember, the question always ends with a question mark. So um, let's go here first. Then we have on the back, we have one here, and then we go to the other aisle. 
So let's do, let's take two, three questions at the, at the same time. One here and then Maria on the middle here, Keith Pines. Um, just raise your hand again, Keith. There. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Piotr from SISA. Just love asking questions. So um, we've talked a lot about sanctions. Um, and that was what I was spending a fair amount of my time studying at SICE. And um, the thing about what's going on in Venezuela is the amount of unintended consequences. And we're talking about the long term. And I feel that, well, we were kind of reaching, the momentum has stalled. And I feel that it's prob probably better, wouldn't you think, to engage with not just our allies, but those who are also incredibly important on the other side with Russia and China, because unless you're more willing to make compromise, the sanctions are only one policy tool, but diplomacy is equally important. Whether or not you agree with the uh, you know, other side, Maduro, it's still a power struggle. And until you confront that, which is a systemic problem, uh, you're not going to fully tackle alongside the transit rate and um, sources of drugs. Uh, you're not going to tackle a fundamental problem with the Venezuelan uh, criminal activity. So just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Question, thank you. Okay, let's go in the middle. Yeah, hi, uh, Keith Mines, the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, I was trying to get jazzed up last night for this session by watching the last episode of Jack Ryan, but uh, I, I fell asleep before it ended, so I don't know if it has a happy ending or not. You toggle back and forth between the day of what we need to do with armed groups now to, to shut off their revenue to the regime and try to put pressure on the regime, and the day after. It seems like today we're kind of stuck because the revenue is flowing from all sorts of places. It's also flowing from uh, remittances and the semi-dollarization of the economy. I think we're just stuck, frankly, but there may be something to be done there. But, but in any event, the day after especially, it seems like there's a need for a new player. And I just wondered if you've thought about, both for the day of and the day after, uh, the role that the UN could play. And the day after, I certainly don't see how this is ever gonna get sorted out without a space and had a voice in a transition of a period of time. If the armed forces are part of the illegal activity happening within Venezuela, and this will represent for them many things which are making them want to stay, for sure. If there is a solution for a change is it possible in Venezuela to have a situation like there was in Poland, where there is some sort of transition that gives some space for those that are making it possible for the regime to stay today? Because the armed forces is making it possible for the regime to stay today. And they have not a lot to lose. They have everything to lose. So if we don't give a way out, why are they going to allow for a change? So I think on the day after, not only the economic security, but then again, back to the political possible solutions to the problem. And, and there are many, many others that need to be looked at. Very important point. Thank you. Thanks, Sam, for bringing that up. Any other comments yet, Sam? Uh, just a couple of thoughts here. Um, and. None of us speak for this administration, but my impression is that there has been interaction with the Russians and the Chinese uh, by the um, representatives of Juan Guaido and also by the, the U.S. government in terms of discussions on, uh, on, on, on Venezuela and kind of how those play out. Um, 
is anyone's guess at this point. I'm assuming not just in Washington, Moscow, but in Beijing as well on that. Um, I think one of the, the things everyone struggles with, going back to this kind of day after question, uh, is um, to get to that point, as we've seen in any other number of circumstances around the world, there's kind of like what one would might want to see from the moralistic ideal point of view, and then the reality of kind of how do you reach um, some kind of modus vivendi. When you're talking about the military, and the, there's many examples out there, and uh, the vice president just raised another one, um, in terms of kind of how do you basically keep the Venezuelan military, I would put it, in the barracks, uh, allow to allow a transition, recognizing that they have had this uh, other role uh, directly in the policy process, but also in terms of how corrupted the institution has become, at least at, at senior levels. And there may be that's an area where people are just going to have to really swallow some unpleasant um, situations uh, to kind of create some space as well as, and unfortunately, uh, that's mainly been able to stay the, the case. Uh, and I'm sure that there will be a bipartisan push uh, through Congress uh, for new money to be sent to Venezuela when there is a day after. But I wouldn't expect that to be $20 billion, right? Or 15 or 10 or five, right? Maybe it's a billion or two. Uh, maybe it's going to be loan guarantees like we did with Ukraine. Uh, it's not going to be a ton of money. And if the United States of America isn't going to give a ton of money, then I guarantee you that nobody else in the world will, right? We're always the leaders in humanitarian uh, uh, aid. Uh, and again, and I think we're the most impacted of the Europeans or the Asian countries there. So uh, will the World Bank come through? Will the IMF come through? Of course, they're going to each have their packages. The UN will have to come through. But even then, it won't be enough. And the solution is going to have to come in the end of the day from the people of Venezuela and from the private sector, which I think will have a lot of room to grow there. Uh, the, the last point on the uh, what do you do with the army um, uh, from Brian, uh, you know, um, that's going to be a tough, tough problem. Uh, I think one of the two key problems that the, the, the government is going to have in the day after is what do you do with all the security for it? And it's not just the army, right? There's the illegal, the, the, the motorcyclists with guns, right? I think that's an even perhaps bigger problem uh, because I think they, they actually buy into some of the uh, Maduro nonsense. Uh, whereas I think the army probably knows better, but they just they, they want to get paid. Right. So so you need to figure out how you're who who's the, who are the really bad people that you can't interact with that need to go to jail, that need to pay the, the price. Uh, and who are the, the vast majority of people that you need to just move on and uh, and, and kind of bring along? And that's going to be a very tough issue. The second, I think, really tough issue uh, is going to be uh, how the new administration, how the new president survives beyond a few months. Uh, because, um, you know, I think people will be understanding at first uh, and they will give the new president space at first uh, saying, OK, you know, austerity measures. OK, things will get worse. Uh, but that will only last a little while. Right. People's patience runs thin. And I think people probably think in their mind that, you know, patience is like six months and then things will start getting better. <laughs> and uh, truth is, I think things will get much, much worse once uh, the a new president is actually responsible with the way they're spending the people's money. Uh, and austerity measures will be severe. Uh, and chances are that within six months to a year, the people will say, you know what? We had it better under Maduro's days, you know? And so how do you survive uh, in a democratic establishment, uh, small d, right? Where, uh, how do you make that happen? Uh, that'll be another major challenge. Thank you. Juan, any quick comments on all of these issues? I'm, I'm debating whether to say anything or not because uh, I, I'm, I want to be the contrarian here. And I, maybe I'll add 
uh, two points. One, on the issue of the UN, I don't know what leads us to believe that the UN is going to provide some sort of solution when we've had the U.S., individual countries, the OAS, a group of Lima, the Norwegians, the International Contact Group. And I've never seen a situation that gets resolved by throwing more and more opinions into the table. And I, I, I'm, I'm actually against that. I think we should resolve the issue um, uh, in the region, and it can be done. There's no magic wand that the UN is going to bring to this. And even their WASTA from the UN is I, I'm very suspect. I don't think that's a winner. I think the UN has a situation where the, the, they've played very well in the, in the realm of human of the issue of human rights, and the, but they've come up short on the issue of, of migrants. The, if the UN wants an opportunity to, to, to contribute something, why don't they contribute something that's been underfunded and, and has an, a lack of attention like the migrant issue? Um, and uh, rather than, than opening it up for uh, a full contact sport with the UN in there as well. And on the issue of the army, I know it's very device, divisive. I've said it before. The, the uh, Venezuelan military absolutely has a vote and they have, uh, and they, and they have a, a role to play in this. And, uh, and if they know how to play it smartly, um, more of them will be able to stay and avoid um, uh, negative repercussions. And the longer they wait, it's going to be trickier. And uh, again, I know people uh, love to say that there are no comparisons. I think they, they need to probably look deeper into the issues, but there are comparisons uh, with Panama on this. There are places to get it wrong, like Iraq, and places to get it right, like Panama. And, um, and it was 30 years ago, December 19th. Thank you. Okay, let's do a last round of questions. I, I have Herber on the line here. Um, any other person that wants to make it? Yeah, Pedro Borelli. So one here, Maria, um, they're both close. Jaime, if you don't mind giving the microphone to Pedro here in the middle. Okay, sorry. So we can wait. Herbert. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I like to hear a panel's opinion on um, the state of uh, understanding by the uh, political leadership here in, in, in the states of the magnitude of the threats uh, that, you know, the situation in Venezuela represents for, for the entire region, including, of course, the United States. Um, if you were, you know, uh, to refer to that in terms of um, how well, how uh, deep uh, they, they understand uh, what may be happening in the coming years, on one side, uh, to what extent they would be willing to include that in every every uh, agenda of their multilaterals or negotiations or meetings with Russia, China, Turkey, etc. And my, the related question is, um, what recommendation would you make to the Venezuelan opposition in terms of helping to uh, in, in you know to that uh, to this political leadership here? To, to understand that. Uh, what mistake or have been made or, or what effort are not being made that need to be made by the Guaido's uh, government in, in helping to bring the political leadership here understand the magnitude of the threat? Thank you. Thanks, Herbert. Just pass the microphone on the other side here. Yes. And last question, Pedro. Hi, I'm Pedro I'm actually just really taking off from Herbert Torres's question is, when we talk about the group of Lima, and, and I agree with Fernando and, and Vice President San Malo was very active uh, as, as a foreign minister also of Panama. Um, 
it worked for a long time, and none of this discussion entered into that. I mean, you look at every single one of the declarations, and there's probably now 20-something declarations from the Group Lima. They never described this problem. Um, Norway is having discussions with two parties, the government, uh, illegal government, the, the usurper, and the legitimate government. But they're not bringing in all these elements. I mean, the Colombian peace plan, which the Norwegians were very involved, involved the government and the illegal guys who are occupying part of the territory, making life quite difficult. So how long can we go on with an international community that is actually focused on the wrong problem in Venezuela and wishing for things? I mean, everybody wants Maduro to leave today, but I'm not sure even the United States has a plan of how to support Guaido tomorrow to stay in power, to do those early things that, that, that Juan Cruz was, was mentioning about. I don't think this plan exists. So are we in a delusional kind of environment where a problem uh, that is growing in size and it's actually growing because of sanctions, as explained by, by Paul Iron, that the more sanctions there is, the more illegality there exists, and we're actually continuing to focus about diplomatic and electoral solutions and stuff like that when we're actually diverging from that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so we have two... Three questions. <laughs> uh, feel free to jump in on that. But just just a, a reminder: we have about three minutes left, so just make it very quick. Maybe one minute each, if you don't mind. Um, I'll start first. Uh, I'll, I'll tread this first. Um, liking to think I'm not being deluded. Um, I, you know, the first question: political leadership. I do think that there is recognition by the political leadership. Um, in the political branches on um, the threat that Venezuela poses uh, to the region, to the United States. Uh, the magnitude of that, I think, um, how they assess the magnitude of that is going to be, you ask 535 individual members and you'll get 635 different opinions. I think Congress took an important step last week with this formation of a Venezuela caucus. Um, now, in some cases, that is simply symbolic. But the fact that some members of Congress, again, bipartisan, came together to at least put some more attention on Venezuela. Uh, if you look at the mechanics of our government, that's a positive step. It's not going to resolve uh, the disconnects in U.S. policy, but it becomes an important piece. This is where the Venezuelan opposition, or let me say, the representatives of the constitutional Venezuelan government um, need to have more of a presence, I think, in not just Washington, but a number of capitals around the world. They need to make sure that they're getting their message out, that they are describing to people what is the day-to-day -day reality uh, of um, the situation in Venezuela and also what it means for the region. I think the Colombians have done a phenomenal job on their own. Uh, now, clearly, they put attention uh, upon the impact, uh, Venezuela's impact on Colombia, as they well should, because they are bearing the brunt of it. Um, but from what I see, uh, I see more Colombian uh, messaging and trying to put attention on at least the humanitarian circumstance um, than I see from the Venezuelan opposition, as well-intentioned as they um, as, as they may be. Pedro, to go to your, your question, um, I think one of the challenges that uh, we have um, from 